Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. This week we continue with part two of a session from the 2019 Tucson Festival of Books curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices program. The session is entitled Nurturing the Diverse Soul. Local authors and activists Naomi Ortiz and Michelle Tejas discuss how staying rooted in your culture helps women of color thrive and build resilience in activism, self-care, and motherhood. Up first, moderator Dominique Calza introduces the authors and then Naomi Ortiz reads from her work. Hi, welcome, bienvenidos. Um, welcome to the 2019 Festival of Books. This panel, Nurturing the Diverse Soul. I will start with a couple of bios. So Dr. Michelle Theus, a single mother to a 13-year-old daughter, is an interdisciplinary scholar trained in community studies, sociology, Chicana, Chicano studies and education, writes about identity, mothering, transnational community formation, cross-border labor organizing, gendered migration, autonomy, and resistance along the U.S.-Mexico border. Dr. Theus has published in several book anthologies and in journals such as Gender and Society, Feminist Formations, Aslan, Chicana Latina Studies, and Violence Against Women. She has also written for Truth Out, The Feminist Wire, Latino Rebels, and Mujeres Talk. In her 20 years of community engagement and activism, she has been involved in multiple projects for change at the grassroots level, utilizing critical pedagogy, principles of sustainability, community-based arts, performance, and visual media. Dr. Theus is a founding member of the Chicana Motherwork Collective and the Binational Artist in Residency Project. She is on the editorial review board for Chicana Latina Studies, the Journal of Mujeres Activas en Letras y Cambio Social, on the executive board of directors for the Southwest Folklife Alliance, and is the faculty fellow for the Guerrero Student Center. A graduate of UCLA, Teachers College, Columbia University, and Claremont Graduate University, Dr. Theus was a dissertation fellow in the Department of Chicana Chicano Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and a Chancellor's Postdoctoral Fellow in the Latina Latino Studies Program at the University of Illinois, uh, Urbana-Champaign. The recipient of various national fellowships, teaching, and research awards, she most recently was awarded the Tucson Public Voices Fellowship for 2017 through 2018, and you can find out more about her work at www.michelletheis.com. Naomi Ortiz um, is a writer, poet, visual artist, facilitator, and the author of Sustaining Spirit, Self-Care for Social Justice. Um, yes, yes, yes. Um, she is grounded in social justice work through community anti-violence work, disability justice, and intersectional organizing within movements. Naomi is a nationally known writer, speaker, and trainer on self-care, disability justice, and living in multiple worlds. She conducts workshops exploring self-care tools and strategies for diverse communities. Naomi has written for the feminist Wire, Vida, Poems and Numbers, and contributed to the anthology Resistance and Hope, Essays by Disabled People. She is a disabled mestiza, Latina indigenous white, raised in Latinx culture, living in the US-Mexico borderlands. Naomi's book, Sustaining Spirit, shows us how to balance activism with self-care by guiding readers to sink into poetic metaphor and examine their relationship to self, community, and place. 
Find Naomi on her website, www.naomiortiz.com. So um, I'm a crip, so that means it's easier for me to have real paper to read from. So you can imagine me like flipping open the book. <laughs> so a lot of my um, work is looking at coping mechanisms and how to bring more intention to these coping mechanisms. So I tried to pull out parts from a chapter to give you an all an idea of what this looks like. So these are, are separate paragraphs. It's, it's missing a lot, but I tried to try to cut down and uh, give you just a taste. So I actually talk about javelinas in the beginning here. And if you don't know what a javelina is, it's the picture actually that they use this year for the festival, the little like piggy looking animal. So now that I have your attention. <laughs> Turning, I lock my door to my room at the Abbey on my way to the kitchen to eat lunch. A few steps down the serene outdoor corridor, I suddenly noticed a large javelina about 15 feet away. On her foreleg, she probably comes up to my upper thigh. Her head slowly turns, and she looks at me dead in the eye. I stare back at her, both of our bodies tense. Quickly, I assess to where I can get to if she charges me. I realize that the door to my room is locked, but I'm not too far from the Abbey's small chapel. Suddenly, a memory of a TV show flashes in my mind where the host was talking about how to tell if a cat was relaxed, that you were supposed to make it a long, exaggerated blink at the cat, and if they blinked back, they were relaxed. These thoughts happen in seconds, and an instant later, I make the rash decision to do a long, exaggerated blink at the javelina. As I'm closing my eyes for the blink, I realize that she is less than 15 feet away. Easy distance to close if she charges, and while I'm blinking, I cannot see if she's moving towards me or not. The only defense for my body is a column in the hallway, a leap of faith, I think, as my eyes slowly shut and start to reopen. Fully prepared to dive behind the column I'm standing next to, instead, I see the shoulder muscles in her back relax. She breaks her gaze and starts using her nose and teeth to dig into the ground. I can't believe it worked. I chance walking one direction, and she matches my pace walking the other. I make it to the kitchen door and duck safely inside. I think quickly in scary situations, and I'm unafraid to take a risk and act. These skills were honed in the experiences and the environment I grew up in. Always being aware of my surroundings, the people, their energy, sharpened my senses to keep me safe. Vigilance made me friends with my fear. It was my weapon of choice as I lived my life at home and out in the world. I learned that my hypervigilance helped me to be courageous. I believed that if I can anticipate what could happen, all the possibilities in the matter of seconds, then I can make a choice about how to act. Yet no matter how good I got at anticipating possible outcomes, I couldn't ignore how exhausting constant vigilance was. As I moved into the work world where social justice was the focus, I was excited about the values they discussed, like interdependence, which I had learned in my cultural communities. However, in these activist communities, figuring out how to get things done as a group together was not in reality embraced as a legitimate way to operate. Yet what was familiar was a state of crisis. Our group found out at the last minute that a state policymaker had called, a hearing the next day, and we needed to be prepared to talk. A volunteer had been detained, and we needed to respond with support. A state of crisis felt normal. In social justice activist communities, people reacted like they do in a crisis, scattered, trying to keep up with the moment, and refusing, unable to create any time for reflection. 
I realized that these communities, which I initially sought out as an alternative to the ones I was raised in, were actually replicating some of the negatives like crisis, but without a lot of the positives like interdependence. People in these groups I was part of would create a problem in order to get what they needed or make someone else responsible for dealing with situations which made them feel overwhelmed. I found myself treating the activist communities as if I, my body, heart, and mind was a city bus. And each person who was part of the community had a seat on that bus. I was trying to satisfy my own needs through caring for and taking responsibility for others. However, the people inside the bus were only happy when they got to where they wanted to go, when their expectations were met. Even though I was working hard and I felt good about meeting others' needs, I eventually started mistaking their needs for my own because I was centering them in my core. During the time I worked a full-time activist job from home, I had a boss who berated me on a staff call for not responding to an email she sent on a Sunday. This staff call was the following Tuesday. My grandfather's funeral had been Sunday, and I was out sick Monday. She called me after the staff call to talk one-on-one. -on -one. She continued to berate me, saying that my boundaries were too thick, that when something was urgent, she needed to be able to get a hold of me. It's almost impossible to kick some people off the bus, but keep others on. Things can only shift when I restructure what is located at my core. Even though the staffing situation, my covering two duties of two staff positions, was constantly explained to me as temporary, nothing ever changed. The culture of crisis continued. I felt stressed out and afraid all of the time. Vigilance and anticipation of what would happen next only made me feel depressed and unable to focus on the here and now. Fear. Fear wiggles around my rational, logical place. It's all fight, flight, freeze, or constantly, frantically respond, respond, respond. Yet I began to realize that courage could not actually be anticipating every possible outcome and juggling it all. I had only made myself overly responsible for everything, and people were happy to let me carry that weight. I didn't feel courageous. I felt exhausted. Instead of responding to a community by centering them, offering them every seat on the bus. I need it instead to center myself. It's as if I'm a tree. I need to be the trunk and the wandering limbs and everyone else the leaves. I can center myself as the core. As the trunk and limbs, I may be a conduit to help nourish the community, but I also have the capacity to shed them in order to preserve my life. When I began to recenter myself as the primary thing to which my energy went, those people who had relied on me to give their problems attention resisted. No one was happy I was prioritizing my own self-care, honoring my own truth in the situation. However, the more I learned to trust myself and my understandings of things, the clearer I was about making choices which supported my own nourishment. People are smart. They will try to find a way to make you care. They may attack your self-worth or create a crisis. They may even withdraw and sulk or find other ways to draw you in. One of the activists I interviewed had a great response when she felt like she was tempted to be pulled into a crisis. She simply called it detect, delay, and respond. So I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you both. Are you currently working on something new? Are there any projects um, that you're excited about in the near future? <laughs> 
So the anthology that we just mentioned, um, Resistance and Hope, is really pretty awesome if you haven't heard of it. Uh, it's a, it just came out in October, and it's a bunch of essays by primarily people of color who are disabled around the concept of resistance and hope in these times. And so it's a free ebook that you can download, so you can Google resistance and hope. Um, so I'll just put in a plug for that. Awesome, awesome. thank you. Uh, I am working on a single author manuscript, actually, that uh, it has to do about community, transnational community formation along the border. So it looks at how global economic policies are, have shaped border communities, but also how border communities are responding. So by looking at one autonomous community in Tijuana, Mexico, which is the border that I'm from, Tijuana and San Diego. And it's been a long project that I started many years ago. And then, then when I came to Arizona, I um, was started to write about uh, mothering, and, and then I started writing about the, the immediate conditions in front of me, right? Um, because it, I felt that those stories needed to get out. So I'm sort of returning to this this older project. Um, and it, the book is called uh, Responding to the Spaces of Neoliberal Neglect, Las Mujeres de Maclovio Rojas. So now we'll, we'll open it up to questions from the audience. Questions or comments for the authors? Yes. So I'm going to kind of project a little bit just for folks. Um, how many siblings do they each have and where do you fall in line in that order? Is that correct? Um, so I have a younger brother, but it's from my dad and my stepmom. Um, so I'm the oldest, I guess. We have, uh, there's five of us. I'm the youngest. Uh, I'm the only one that left home. I'm the only one that doesn't live in San Diego. And yeah, <laughs> everybody's home. Yeah. So I mean, it's interesting, right? This journey um, as an academic, as an, a writer. You know, I know for many years, uh, my family was like berating, like, "When are you going to be done?" I was an elementary school teacher right after college. I went to UCLA, I graduated. I was a high elementary school teacher, and everybody's like, "Okay, you're set. You know, now get married and have kids." <laughs> And um, and then I didn't do that, and everybody's like, "How are you walking away from this?" You know, and it's infinite curiosity. I think is what I responded, mm -hmm. and uh, and also just I didn't imagine just staying, you know, and I wanted to think about the world in different ways. And so, uh, so there was a, there was a little bit of pushback. I lost my father in college, and then my mother uh, when my daughter was five. So it's just my siblings, and I think once I hit thirty, you know, they were like, "All right, we'll do whatever you want with your life. <laughs> they let it go." <laughs> Family support? <laughs> um, yeah, I think my family, when I quit my job uh, as a director of an organization, were like, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> and we had several frank conversations about that. Um, and then it was amazing. Like, I think sometimes it's about setting your own path, and people end up following where you lead. And now my family's amazing. And they're like, all right, you did this. Cool. We're behind you, and we're supporting you. Yeah, and it made me think about um, my my mom who migrated to this country, you know, and and uh, and sort of left her family of origin behind, and and was the only one that came, you know. All of my family on my mom's side is still in Jalisco, and so all my primos, you know, all my first cousins, my tios, my everybody's still there, and so so I always would say that to her, you know, well, you left, and she's like, yeah, but you know. You were listening to a session from the 2019. Tucson Festival of Books curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices program entitled Nurturing the Diverse Soul on 30 Minutes 91.3 KXCI Tucson 
Moderator Dominique Causa and local authors and activists Naomi Ortiz and Michelle Tejas discussed how staying rooted in your culture helps women of color thrive and build resilience in activism, self-care, and motherhood. An audience member asked the panelists how young Latina, Chicana activists, and scholars can push through. Michelle Tejas responds first, followed by Naomi Ortiz. I mean, I think for me, finding people that I trusted was really important along the way, you know, especially when you're having really hard conversation and pushing against institutions that are slow changing. Uh, you want to know that you have people who support you, like really support you. And so that comes from building rela relationships. And a lot of my social and political formation came around uh, the time of the Zapatista movement, right, in the, in the 90s. And so I learned a lot about non-hierarchical practices of, of, of conviviality, of collectivity. And so that really helped build communities. And so those are the people that now, you know, all these years later, you know, we, I still trust. And we may not all be in the same place. Um, but I think building relationship is fundamental. You know, you can't change anything if you don't have relationships with people. So uh, I think that's how we share our human experience, which is diverse and complicated. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I also think that um, it never gets easier. Like, they never actually ever want you there <laughs> or expect you to be there. Might actually be more, um, a per more accurate. Uh, and so it doesn't even really matter. It doesn't, because, uh, I mean, it matters in the sense of like how we take it in and our choices to take it in. Um, I think for myself, one of the things that has been really, really helpful is finding individual practices I can do, sort of like expecting things to be tough, um, which I know sounds a little bit maybe pessimistic, but it actually is really empowering. And so oftentimes going into community groups that I know um, are going to be pretty uncomfortable that I'm there, uh, you know, I'll do like a ritual with myself before I go. I will consciously think about how I'm creating boundaries in that space. I will consciously think about how to call in, you know, my ancestors and support systems that aren't human um, to support me in that space. So I guess it's like, to me, I've kind of taken the individual approach because I don't always have relationships to rely on in those situations. Um, yeah, but I'm glad you're out there and doing you. Anybody else? Yes. Writing process. <laughs> it's messy. <laughs> it's writing like, you know, I feel like I get like for the first three, three drafts, by the third draft, I'm like, I totally know what I'm doing. And then by the fifth draft, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing at all. <laughs> and then it's usually by like the seventh draft that I'm like, okay, I think this is it. This feels embodied and this feels right. So for me, it's like, I think when I feel like something's embodied that... I feel like then it's uh, then it's real and it's good. It's I'm ready to let it go. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> I, I think it depends on what I'm writing. You know, um, I've been thinking a lot about writing and especially women of color. How you know we need to be writing more. Um, and 
And for me, it's cathartic to write. There are things that I, if I don't write, then I'm not, then I'm holding them in. That, that's my form of release, is to write about it. And so uh, this this area of work of mine, you know, has been, you know, some, if I ha, has been something that I've been living viscerally. And so then when I'm able to get it on paper and put it out there, it's, it's like I can let it go a little bit. And so it's not as hard. This kind of work isn't as hard for me to write. Or even, you know, if I see something in the world and I need to respond to it, you know, and then I can write a short piece about it and, and it just sort of comes out and, and it has to come out, you know? Like there's just this moment where you're just, uh. then there's the other writing as a, you know, as a scholar that is a lot more difficult for me and, um, and that's very messy and I, and I always see people, you know, they have this very methodical way of writing and, uh, and I admire that, right? Because they, they have their little outline and then they follow it and then they edit it and then it's done and I'm never like that. And so with that kind of work. So I, um, but I do remember a few things when I'm thinking about what I want to write and what I want to attach, you know, my brain and my spirit to, which is that I write about things that matter to me. And so that makes it, um, when I do that, then I'm making sure that, you know, I have an investment in it. And so it's not just to write, because in this world, you know, the whole publish or perish thing model is very real. And so sometimes people are just writing to write and there's no substantive body there of anything to, to make change in the world, right? And so um, so for me, it's, it's about what, it, I want to write about something that matters to me, and, um, and then to make sure that it's accessible. And so that's sort of how I get into a project, and then I, I wish that I could say that I also wrote every day, you know, like those things. I don't do that. Like, I, I write probably, like, I wrote things, like, from 10 o'clock at night to, like, 4 in the morning. Like, I'm just, like, a, you know not a very um, methodical writer. So I'm trying to get better at that. And then having a, my daughter completely changed how I wrote, though, because then if I was up all night, then I was up all day and up all night and up all day. And that just was true for a couple years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. But keep writing. If you're writing, keep writing. Yes. And share your writing. Find people to read it. I'll read it. So have you ever experienced um, envidia or feelings of jealousy that have held you back from your work or moving forward? I think that's a real question, you know? I think that that's, you know, human nature, there's a lot, it's, relationships are really complicated. Um, but I can't recall something that has impeded my work necessarily. Um, in my writing, I mean, this environment is very competitive, and uh, so to think, you know, to respond to it in a way that is um, that demands collectivity is is not the norm. And so, I think that uh, there have been times along the path that people didn't support, you know, me, and and I just have chosen, you know, not to. Uh, put my energies into that because that then is like an individual processing that hurts me and not necessarily moves you know me forward and so but there hasn't been a specific incident that I can think of that you know that has just laid me out I got denied tenure at a university and that I'm still here so um, yeah 
Yeah, I think that, um, I appreciate that question, actually. It's a good question. Um, I think definitely I have my moments, especially I have actually to really um, change my relationship with social media because, uh, you know, it's like everybody's best foot forward, like the shiny place, that's <laughs> especially for writers. Um, and so I, I think about going on social media now as like engaging in the marketplace, which for me actually is sort of uh, a better way to frame it for myself because then I'm like, oh, of course, awesome. They have a line stretching out from their booth, you know, good for them. Like I, it just helped me be in a better place about it instead of like being like, whoa, oh, why is that not me? Why is that, you know, getting stuck in that? The other thing is that I'm really glad I came from organizing work because a lot of times when we were all, um, so I ran a national disability youth organization and there was like maybe three of us in the country that were doing national work. And so if there was a grant that one of us could apply for, there was a grant that all three of us could apply for. So I, every single time would reach out to these other organizations and be like, all right, how do we collaborate? Like, let's, let's apply for this together. Let's not compete for these funds. Let's figure out how to divvy it up. Um, and so every time I've found myself being a little more jealous or having that kind of reaction, I try to promote somebody else's work and to like share somebody else's stuff and to make that effort of like um, giving that spotlight. So just to me, it's bringing some mindfulness to it, which has been really helpful. Any other questions? One more question. Yeah, that's great. Role models. Yeah. So I have a couple. One is um, Gloria Anzaldúa, which I feel like <laughs> a lot of... Uh, as we'd probably claim, but coming from the borderlands and also incorporating, uh, you know, many perspectives in the, into one, um, it's just been a really beautiful thing to, to just see somebody else grapple with that, very honestly, and um, write about it. And the other one um, that I really look up to a lot, she's passed now, um, but she's a disability activist, uh, Harriet McBride Johnson. She's a lawyer, and she did, she talked about... Um, she needed rides everywhere because she couldn't drive. So she had an accessible van, which was pretty awesome because uh, that isn't true for a lot of folks. But uh, she needed drivers. And so she, what she would do is she'd be like, okay, if you drive me to X place, I will tell you a story. And so she would tell people stories. And so she ended up writing a book with some of her favorite stories that she would tell people as they drove her around. And I just really love that because it's also sort of uh, the gift economy to me, like giving gifts to each other and having things framed in that way. Um, and so she's somebody who I like hold a lot. Yeah. Uh, I had the privilege of last week hosting one of my role models. Her name is Chandra Tapal de Mahanti. She's a transnational feminist writer, scholar. And the reason that I really admire her is because not only does she uh, help us expand our understandings of the world in which we live in and ways to, to think about how we can change things. Um, she also lives it, right, in terms of um, how she is as a friend, as a mentor, a femtor, and a person who moves in the world in a way that, as I've said before, in an environment that is highly competitive, you know, and she is the opposite of that. So we just hosted her here at the U of A last two weeks ago, and I got to have a whole week with her. And I've, you know, I've known her for many years, but it was really a, a gift to have her with me. And, and then I've also been thinking about, um, you know, like this book, our, our first, um, our first, you know, our acknowledgments, you know, I, 
we um, include like our, our children and then our mothers and our grandparents, you know, and, and our grandmothers. And, uh, and I think oftentimes, you know, we lose that history, you know, and we, we're seen as just belonging singularly when we actually come from you know, a lineage. And so, uh, my, our, and then I think about the experiences of just these four generations of my grandmother in the small town in Mexico who was left a widow um, when my grandfather was murdered and over land issues. And then she was left to raise, you know, my nine um, tío, tíos and tías in Mexico. And then about my mother who migrated here and was a domestic worker and um, and then stayed for, for her children. And and then I think about my daughter who has a completely experience, different experience than, than all of that, right? And so that, if, if I, I don't know if I would put them in that category of role models, but I think about who reminds me of why I do the work that I do. And I, and I think of those four generations and then those that will come in the future. Great, thank you. Well, thank you all for your questions, your comments. Thank you to the authors. Before we wrap up, yes. can I just can I just invite everybody to like maybe take a deep breath and do some shoulder rolls yes. and like maybe wiggle in your seat a little bit. You all have been like troopers sitting with us for an hour listening. Yes. So thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you, Naomi and Michelle, for you, your words, for, your for sharing. Yeah. And thank you all very much. Thank you. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to a session from the 2019 Tucson Festival of Books curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices program entitled Nurturing the Diverse Soul on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Local authors and activists Naomi Ortiz and Michelle Tejas discuss how staying rooted in your culture helps women of color thrive and build resilience in activism, self-care, and motherhood with moderator Dominique Calza. This has been part two of a two-part series. You can find this and all recent episodes of 30 Minutes on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org. You can also subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. There's also a 30 Minutes Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening. I'm Amanda Schager. <laughs>